Welcome to the podcast. We do recover with Jared Miller, your host. And I'm Dr. Terry Sellers, your co-host. This is a podcast about recovery from addiction. We want to talk about what successful recovery can look like. Brought to you by Steps Recovery Center and the St. George Hilton Garden Inn. You're listening to episode 29 of We Do Recover. I'm your host, Jared Miller. Today, I'm joined in the recovery lounge by Sean, the producer that makes this thing possible. Hi! There he is, his yeah, signature right. holler. You won't give me a microphone. What's going on? <laughs> oh, too fun, too fun. And we have big John Taylor with Hunts for the Brave. Thank you so much for coming on, John. How are you this morning? I'm doing good, doing good. I don't know about the uh, big part other than my uh, girlish figure, but uh, <laughs> we'll uh, we'll run with that. Oh, come on, you're a giant of a man. Don't be, don't be, don't get humble on us, buddy. Yeah, well, that's how we have to live. You're doing some big things, and I'm excited to get to it. I'm excited to get to the, the stuff that you guys are doing. So this podcast was recorded in sunny St. George, Utah. Episode 29, part one, is brought to you by Steps Recovery Centers, where addiction ends and healing begins. If you or a loved one needs help, please give them a call, 801-800-8142. So we always start off with new and goods. Sean, you want let's get your new and good. I hear you got some jet lag going on. What's yeah, up with that? Yeah, I, I had another trip up to Washington to, to build another radio studio. Yeah? Yeah. I'm getting a lot of driving. Are you going to just get a second house up there while you're I'm up thinking there? about it. Maybe like a little studio. Mm. Can't afford a house. Yeah. I, Washington's more, you think St. George is expensive. Isn't Washington super expensive? I have no idea. I didn't look. All yeah. I know is all the restaurants are still closed. It is. I have a son that lives in uh, West Seattle, and uh, it's very expensive. Very, very expensive to find even an apartment up there, a house to rent. So, yeah, it's expensive. So good luck with that. I think I'll be staying here. There you go. There you go. Solid plan. Right. I want to stay in my own expensive rather than, like, new expensive. There you go. There you go. <laughs> right. What else is happening in the world of Sean, man? It's about it. Just, just, just working hard. School thing. Midterms are this week. Spring break the week after. Nice. Oh, yeah, there's the whole Dixie name change thingy. Yeah, what is going on? Yeah, we're we're getting away from Dixie, huh? Because there's I, some kind of I you know what, as I say, as long as the check clears every two weeks, I don't care what name's on it. That's a great point. <laughs> that really is a, that's a great Daddy's point. Daddy's got bills to pay. That's why he's going to Washington. Right. <laughs> I love it. Thanks, Sean. I appreciate you checking in. John Taylor, what's new and good with you? What's going on in your world, buddy? Ah, uh, we're just uh surviving, trying to uh stay healthy and uh, avoid any kind of illness and sickness and uh enjoying uh being down here in st george today and uh grateful for this opportunity isn't it so nice down here it is it is it's a little shock i kept waiting for the temperature to change as i was driving south and uh, that never happened till after i dropped out of cedar city but we'll take it <laughs> so john john's from up at salt lake area right yeah yeah out of west jordan so yeah, west jordan yeah. yeah, it's funny how that doesn't really change until you come down from Cedar, right? Yeah, it was crazy. Welcome so. to the desert. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. So I had the craziest thing happen to me this morning, right? I, I get up, I'm by nature an early riser, and I get up and I go and I get a workout in. And I'm like, this is my new and good, everybody. And, it, well, this is my weird story, but I'll get to my new and good. So I get in the sauna, and I'm like toweling off, right? Like getting ready to put on my sweater and you know, head home. And I kid you not, this guy comes behind me and goes, meow. And I was like, huh? Like I turned around <laughs> with this just shock and awe. Like, did, did I really just get meowed at? Like, that is the craziest thing. And what I wanted to say to him is like, you know, that is the truest form of a cat call. Yes. Yes, that is. It was, it was a through and through a cat call. I wanted to be like, easy guy, I'm getting my engagement pictures done today. So that's my new and good. But I had to tell the weird story before I got to the new and good. Well, you got to tell your uh, your fiance that, uh, you know, she, she needs to be grateful for you because now you have <laughs> oh, options. Oh, God. Oh, man. Well, I can tell the direction this is going. I'm grateful to be able to get in my car and go back north this afternoon. <laughs> oh, so. man. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Well, let's get to it. John Taylor. You tell, tell us about, I know that you're one of the, the people that's a, a big mover and shaker and hunts for the brave. 
Tell us a little bit about Hunts for the Brave, the work that they do, your position. Let's start right there. So I'm chairman of the board for Hunts for the Brave. I have uh, a group committee of board members that help us out that uh, facilitate everything from permits from the division and paperwork and making sure gates are locked or unlocked and uh, going on. But uh, couldn't do it without uh, my committee. So I'm grateful to those guys and what they bring to the table and the effort that they put in. Um, we all volunteer our time, our trucks. Uh, we have nobody on the payroll, nice. which uh, we're, we're uh, extremely proud of that fact. And uh, kind of a quick breakdown of Hunts for the Brave. We're an affiliate of Sportsmen for Fish and Wildlife out of uh, North Ogden. Uh, so we work under their umbrella. And uh, we had the opportunity about nine years ago to uh, start to reach out and try to give back to some of our veterans. We've been able to uh, reach out to our veterans, first responders. We've uh, helped cancer patients um, across the board, people in need. But uh, our biggest, biggest area is uh, giving back to our veterans. So... A true labor of love. Sounds like nobody's getting paid. Nobody's on the payroll. You guys are just doing it from the goodness of your heart and, and to establish some kind of camaraderie and connection. Yeah, and that's the biggest thing, you know, especially with the veterans. They sign up. They go overseas. They have a brotherhood. Then all of a sudden they get injured. They have issues. They get sent home, and they've lost that brotherhood. And uh, unfortunately, that can lead to some very dark places. And... Uh, we're grateful that we have the opportunity to bring them into our family and into our brotherhood and uh, allow them to re-engage, uh, you know, a brotherhood that they think that they've lost. Also, the uh, opportunity to be in the outdoors, hunting, fishing. Um, we've had guys that just wanted to go for four-wheeler rides. We've been down to Bryce Canyon on horseback rides. Um, we just try to cater to the individuals as they're brought to us. Yeah, those of us that work in this field call it experiential exercises experiential activities getting out getting with nature right i love it you know it's it's crazy you mentioned that people come back a lot of times they have physical injuries right i right. mean is, is it too far off base to say people have lost limbs or you know have trapnel injuries things of that nature no it's a, it's across the board and uh you know we're proud of the fact that we've been able to take uh, quadriplegics uh out on hunts and uh you know, we've been in a situation where we had gentlemen that had to uh, use a straw system to uh, activate his weapon, and oh, he, wow. he harvested an antelope. And uh, this gentleman grew up hunting, loved hunting, and then when he was injured, you know, he figured that his life was over and that he would never be able to hunt again. And, uh, you know, to be able to give that back to him, uh, it's priceless. John, why do you think that's so important? Like, why... Why hunts for the brave? Why why become a part of this this foundation? It's a five hundred one c three nonprofit, right? Correct. So Correct. what? Why is that? Do you feel is so important to these veterans and these people that have been through hardships? Because at the end of the day, we want them to know that somebody cares. Yeah, somebody cares. I mean, we're we're extremely grateful. We're talking about individuals that willingly go in and sign their name on the line. They put themselves through the training. They go through all that, and then they come back home, and, um, you know, we don't hear a whole lot about it. We see the news. The news will be up to Hill Air Force Base or wherever, and they'll be waving, you know, the veterans out as they're going out. You know, they're being uh, mobbed to Afghanistan or whatever. We make a big deal in the media, but we never show them coming back home. Um, very rarely do we get that. And if they're injured, we don't see that. You know, yeah. that's that. almost worse than death to some of these guys, because I could only imagine if I, I grew up in a military family, you know, my dad personally, right. And yep. my dad fought in Vietnam. And a lot of times if you grow up and you, your dream is to be this, this warrior, right. This hero, this, this, uh, soldier, and you, you get a piece of that, right. You get a little bit of that experience. And then all of a sudden you have an injury. Take us kind of through the psychological, uh, spiral that happens once that kind of happens to these guys well you know based on my own experience i enlisted in 83 and in 84 i was injured in a training mission in uh, south carolina uh basically just destroyed a knee 
Yeah. And, uh, but the whole time growing up, I wanted to be in the army because I always believed that I could make a difference. And I always thought that there was somebody that I could reach out to and make a difference in their lives. And then when I got injured, everything changed. It was just, uh, you know, like that childhood dream was just gone. And even though I was just uh, enlisted in the reserves, I was the unit armor for the 419th Transport Company. And uh, to have that gone and know that brotherhood was over was uh, pretty shocking. Yeah, almost like a loss of self-identity in a way. Right. Because now you have to reinvent yourself. You have to uh, start over and kind of change your dreams and your direction and what you want to do in life. And, and, uh, you know, the thoughts of being able to help people, uh, you know, other soldiers, to have that gone was uh, overwhelming almost. Yeah, I can imagine. So now I fast forward to, you know, nine years ago, and I get the opportunity to reach out and help my brothers and sisters in arms and give back to them. Um, Everything's come full circle. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. It's amazing. So this is a podcast about recovery from addiction. And I pretty sure it's not too far off base to say that you've seen some of those realms that's, that's prevalent in the work that you do. We have, and uh, it's a challenge to uh, reach out to these guys and uh, keep them motivated, keep them headed in the right direction. Um, You know, we try to, let them know that everything they do, every positive thing you do every day, you need to pick down, or reach down and pick up that piece of armor. Every day you do something positive, it's a piece of armor. Put that on. You're a great person. You're doing amazing things. Put on that armor. Put on the other one tomorrow and the next day. You take those little pieces and put them together, and pretty soon you've got your armor on. And what do we know about armor? It protects you, keeps it, you safe. It makes it so you can turn and face your problems. It was never designed for you to turn and run. Oh. It was designed for you to turn and face your problems. If you're listening to this podcast today, reach out, put that piece of armor on. That's your first piece. Tomorrow there's another one. Then there's one after that. Turn and face your problems. I love that. So that's what we try to do. And uh, we've been pretty successful and we're, uh, we're grateful uh, to family members and uh, people that help support these veterans as they come into our organization. And uh, once they're in, they're part of our family. We're not a one and done. And uh, we have great experiences with these guys, um, almost like aftercare. That's the magic of Funds for the Brave, right? Is that com- that sense of camaraderie, the connection, the the get out of your head. Let's let's all get together. Let's go up in the mountains. Let's go on an elk hunt. Or like, what are some of the events that you do to make this connection and make this bond and build this fire of brotherhood back? So one of the great things that we do is we do a uh, trip up to Strawberry. I'll get uh, three or four veterans on a boat. We start out. Everybody's fishing. By the time these guys get talking, you know, in about an hour, I'm just driving the boat. We're not fishing. <laughs> These guys are talking to each other. They're laughing. They're comparing their, I had this happen. I had that happen. They're comparing their battle scars. And, you know, at the end of the day, across the board, they'll tell you that's the best thing that they've experienced since they were uh, released from the military. Yeah, that's amazing. And I'm just going to chime in real quick and say it, that that makes me think of like group therapy in in recovery a lot of times whether it's aana or you're at a treatment center we do group therapy right and um i'm learning kind of the ropes at steps recovery shalee webb's my she's my supervisor and i learn a lot from her and one of the things that i learned most recently is when you're facilitating a group it's it's not your group it's the it's their group right and it's amazing how when you can kind of throw something out there, right? Pitch the ball. And then they put it, you put the ball in play and then you just let them take over. And I love that. You said after an hour, I'm just driving the boat, right? They're all engaged. They're actively communicating. They're all, and in a way like that's an unconventional, but it's a therapeutic setting, right? That, that really is. I'm sure that's very therapeutic for those guys on that boat, building that camaraderie and sharing some of their feelings and, and the things that they've been through. Right. And it absolutely is. And, uh, you know, one of the key things is that uh, after that trip, after that experience, these guys stay in touch with each other. You know, they do events together. They come to our events. 
um, you know, that brotherhood, even though it's significantly smaller, is still in place, and it gives them something back, something they can look forward to. And, uh, you know, the effects of being in the outdoors, you can't, I don't even know how to explain it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's overwhelming. It's amazing that these guys, what a day, whether it's in the sun or it's snowing or whatever, it's just somebody's giving back and they're out and they're talking and they're laughing. And, uh, it's uh, remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing to watch. I'm sure. Oh, yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, when we first got into it, I thought it was, uh, you know, going to be for the veterans, but uh, it took me about one trip to find out that it was for me as much as it was for them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was the biggest crybaby on the mountain, you know, watching these guys be successful when they thought they were never going to be able to hunt again and nobody cared about them and nobody wanted to give back to them. And, you know, to have somebody openly admit that two days before they were coming to go hunting with us, they were sitting in the garage with their gun in their mouth. Yeah. You know, it's just... It's mind-boggling to me, and, uh, you know, I'd encourage all your listeners, everybody, if you know somebody out there, these veterans and stuff, they're never going to admit that they have an issue. They're too proud. They're too strong. All of my nominations typically come from family members um, because the veterans themselves won't say, I need, I would like, I, you know, help me. They won't ask for that but reach out to them because I guarantee you that they need that. They're looking for it. Give them some love. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a big part of, of, you know, they say in our field, the opposite of addiction is connection. And that's a huge part of it. And like you're saying, a lot of times, look, I was a college athlete, football player, right? I'm not trying to live in the past, but I can kind of relate on some level because I was, I would say to myself, like, you know, here I am this, <laughs> played college football I'm too tough to go talk about my feelings I'm not gonna <laughs> admit that I need to go see a counselor or talk about what's going on in my head you know and so I that's huge John and I appreciate you pointing that out because a lot of times even just the suggestion for those of you that are listening like hey I heard of this this amazing nonprofit foundation called Hunts for the Brave you know John or Jill or whoever it is maybe you should check it out you guys do some cool stuff let's hear about your guys's events take us through a calendar year typically what does that look like so we average about 19 events a year. Um, typically, we'll start uh, turkey hunting in the spring. And, uh, you know, we typically do five, six of those. Um, Where do you usually do those at? Well, let me, let me back up just a little bit. And I need to give a shout out to uh, all the landowners and the CWMU operators that help us with landowner tags and the donations and the opportunity to get these veterans out into uh, areas and property that uh, we wouldn't have access to otherwise. So, um, you know, hats off to those guys and their willingness to give back and support our organization and what we do for, you know, people. But, uh, yeah, we're kind of all over the place. Typically uh, in northern Utah, we do a lot of turkey hunts up there. And then, uh, you know, we fast forward to uh, in the spring. Um, as far as fundraisers, we have a golf tournament. We have a golf tournament coming up uh, June 18th this year. And then uh, fast forward into August, we'll typically start uh, mule deer hunting, antelope hunting. And again, it's all set um, by the donations of the tags and the operators that reach out to us and what they have available and, and what they're willing to do to help us out. Because we are a nonprofit, and uh, you know I can't afford to go out and buy twenty five, thirty thousand dollar elk tags. <laughs> right, right. So, how uh, does that come about, though? Like I've heard that there's been some amazing hunts that you guys have been involved with. I mean, is that the the landowners that are giving you tags? Do people donate tags? How does that come about? So, if I'm listening and, and I, you know, want to contribute or give back, what's the best way? Yeah, the best way you can do, you can find us, you know, our website is uh, huntsforthebrave.org, and there's a donation links there, and, you know, donation doesn't have to be monetary, it can be landowner tags, or it can be volunteering at one of our events. Um, our big event is typically the Western Hunting and Conservation Expo um, every February. This year, that was canceled, I wasn't able to hold that at the Salt Palace, so they just had a uh, online event. And, uh, you know, we're grateful to the people that uh, were willing to bid on our auction items and uh, help support us for 21. But uh, everything comes around about through donation and word of mouth. 
And, uh, yeah. you know, we get these landowners that, uh, will do it one time. If we can get them to do it one time and they get that experience with a veteran or a first responder or somebody that's been injured, then they can't line up fast enough to have us back the next year because it is life-changing, um, not only for our veterans and people, but it's life-changing for the property owners, landowners. Um, it's, yeah. I can't tell you how many times we've stood around the campfire and all of us tears running down our face as we're listening to veteran tell us his stories about how he was blown up and what happened and how grateful he is that, you know, we've got him out where he's at, that he's standing around a campfire and he's talking to everybody. And, you know, again, for a long time, he's grateful to be alive, you know? Yeah. He's, he's grateful to be engaged with somebody. So, um, you know, they're, they're thrilled to be part of our group. That's incredibly important. And I don't know that our listeners really grasp the concept of how important this is. I know that there's some phenomenal numbers behind Vietnam and specifically, like we talk about the deaths that happened and like you stated, John, but we don't talk about what happens when they come home, right? And the, the struggles that they go through. And so it's really cool. That organizations like Hunts for the Brave come in and, and help rebuild that camaraderie and that companionship, give people a sense of purpose, you know, sh- sh- spread some love amongst all the people in the group. Talk to us a little bit about, about that. Like, what does that help us help our listeners grasp the idea of what happens in that scenario? So we all know what's happened in 2020. We're all confined to our houses. Um, everything got shut down. Everything was changed. But we've always had the luxury of knowing that there's possibly light at the end of the tunnel, whether it's 21 or fall of 21 or whatever. We're going to get back into our regular routine as much right. as possible. That's what we're hoping for anyways. <laughs> so if you take one of these veterans that has an issue whether it's physical or mental or whatever, they feel trapped in that all the time. They feel trapped in that since they came home. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. They're not going to be able to get out and run to Walmart and face the crowd and everything else until they get some help. Yeah. And uh, that's what we're looking to do is to get these guys up off the couch, out of the basement, out of the garage, um, you know, it's heartbreaking the fact that we still lose roughly 20 veterans a day to suicide in the United States. That's just, that's too much. Well, one is too much, especially if it's one of your family members. Yeah, we had John Gossett with uh, um, Life's Worth Living Foundation on here, which is a suicide prevention, again, nonprofit. And he shared for every one successful suicide, right, somebody that dies by suicide, there's 25 people that have attempted so if you think about that, as far as with veterans, if we lose 20 a day as a nation, that number is astounding, right? How many people are actually in that place where they're thinking about suicide or they're trying suicide? It's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's overwhelming. It's a, it's a mind-boggling number. And again, because the veterans typically won't ask for help, a lot of times there's no indication. And, uh, you know, you never know what dark place they sink into. And uh, that's our goal. That's our objective is to help and try to identify those people and uh, help to get them out of the garage and out of the basement and out of their dark place and uh, just show them that, you know, somebody loves them and cares about them. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. You're a war guy. How many people do we lose in Vietnam, John? So I think the uh, ballpark number is roughly uh, 58,000 people. There's um, a whole wall dedicated to them. Whole wall dedicated to them. But what nobody talks about is the 100,000 plus that committed suicide after they came home. Over three times as many. It's just, it's mind boggling to me. And, uh, you know, I have a, a soft spot in my heart for our Vietnam vets. And I've been uh, fortunate enough to be on some activities. We're able to take a Vietnam vet and his son that was a... Uh, veteran that was uh, involved in uh, Iraq and get those two together on an outdoor activity. And uh, it was the same thing. Get those two away from the phone and all the distractions. distractions. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you get to a point where you just let them sit on the ridge and talk. And, you know, they shed tears and they hug and they love. And 
and uh, that's what it's about. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been awesome. For those of you that that want to get involved with Hunts for the Brave, where do they go to check it out? Again, you go to uh, huntsforthebrave.org. Um, our website's under a little bit of construction right now, but you can still reach out to us. Thank you guys for listening. In part two, we're going to come back. We're going to get to know John Taylor, the man, get some of his stories with Hunts for the Brave and things that he's been involved with. I'm super excited to get the second part. It'll be fun. You are listening to We Do Recover with Jared Miller and co-hosted by Dr. Terry Sellers. We'll be right back after this short break with more of We Do Recover with Jared Miller, sponsored by Steps Recovery Center and the Hilton Garden Inn. I'm Desmond Lomax, one of the clinical executives here at Steps Recovery. And once you become with the Steps family, you're just a part of the Steps family. A lot of us have overcome substances, overcome addiction, and now we're able to help other people. Second of all, we're also going to help you in a way where you can afford to be helped. Third of all, we're going to give you the same quality that many organizations are charging two to three times. And it's more about you than it is about our organization. We welcome you back to We Do Recover with Jared Miller, co-hosted by Dr. Terry Sellers. Brought to you by Steps Recovery Center and the St. George Hilton Garden Inn. And now with part two of our podcast, Jared Miller and Dr. Terry Sellers. And we're back for part two of episode 29 of We Do Recover. We have our featured guest, John Taylor, here today with Hunts for the Brave. In the first part, we learned about Hunts for the Brave and all the amazing things that they're doing to support our veterans uh, I'm super excited to get to know John Taylor a little bit more, the man behind the foundation and some of the cool experiences that he's had. He's met some pretty legendary people and we're going to get to that. But first, if you're traveling through Southern Utah, episode 29 part two is brought to you by Step or Hilton Garden Inn. If you're traveling through Southern Utah and you need a great place to stay or even a loved one needs a great place to stay, check him out. Give him a Google search. Just type in Hilton Garden Inn, St. George, Utah. It's always sunny and bright at the Hilton Garden Inn. All right. That was a rough sponsorship mention. <laughs> I stumbled through that one. I'm sorry, Hilton. Well, I yeah, will. You've, you've I, done that better in the past. What yeah, happened today, man? I don't know. Okay. I will say I will give them credit. Uh, place was clean. The people were awesome. Um, reach out to the Hilton Garden Inn here in St. George. Um, they did a phenomenal job for me. I'm grateful. So I typically will go and like meet the the guests that are coming on the night before. Like we went and had a really good dinner last night. And one thing that I notice when I'm pulling into the parking lot is they just got that steam coming off that pool. And I'm always like, one of these days, I'm going to go jump in that pool. It looks amazing. <laughs> yeah, so. well, it was full of people last night. So Was it? Yeah, it was. I thought it was a little chilly for myself, but uh, it was full <laughs> of people last night. So. Too, yeah, that's awesome. All right, so John Taylor, let's get to know the man behind the foundation a little bit more. Let's get on a personal level. Let's get deep, buddy. Let's dig. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I was born in uh, Midvale, uh, actually born in Murray, Utah, raised in Midvale. Um, grew up across the street from the dairy farm. Uh, all the neighbors, all everybody in the world that we knew worked at that dairy farm. <laughs> and uh, it was crazy, but it was, uh, it was a great time. And uh, That's how you became big, John Taylor, is all that whole milk and cheese and no <laughs> that's got to be the whole milk i mean that was back in the day when everything was in a glass bottle a gallon glass bottle and uh you know we would carry that through the uh, pasture home and then we'd uh, fight the siblings for the cream off the top <laughs> there you go very so, nice but yeah that was uh where we were raised and uh i have uh, five sisters and no brothers and, uh, you know, unfortunately my older sister, Vicki, uh, passed away and, uh, I got a really, uh, really tough education about life and, uh, feeling sorry for myself in, uh, 2009, I was awarded a caribou hunt up the Northwest, Northwest territories, uh, up above Norman Wells. And, uh, while I was out on that hunt in 2010, I suffered a heart attack. Mm. the uh guy while you're out on the hunt while i'm out on in the, the hunt, middle of the mountain i'm in the middle of <laughs> nowhere i mean it's so quiet up there it keeps you awake at night 
But, uh, yeah, I'm in the middle of nowhere. And uh, the guides thought they were calling in a recovery. And uh, for whatever reason, you know, through the grace of God, uh, I survived that. And uh, I survived the uh, Canadian hospital in Yellowknife. <laughs> was and, that an experience? What was that like? I got firsthand a taste of socialized medicine where you're a number. Oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, they do what they can to make you comfortable in one of these outposts until the bed opens up down in Alberta or Edmonton or somewhere. Oh, wow. And, uh, so they were talking about having to send me down there for open heart surgery. And, you know, they were telling me I'd be in country for roughly six months. And then uh, I still remember the day the uh, nurse, Ruth was her name, came in and she says, John, you're going to be really happy. I says, well, what's up? She says, well, the Americans are coming to get you. <laughs> I says, what? She says, the Americans are coming to get you. It's like, okay. Maybe you gave me too much morphine or something, you know. <laughs> and I have to back up. I have to admit that uh, I refused to drink the caribou broth. I have no idea what it was, but <laughs> I refused to drink it. They told me it was like their coffee. And I just remember telling them that until I knew which end of the caribou it came out of, I wasn't drinking it. <laughs> so, uh, anyways, I remember just that overwhelming feeling when I seen that flight crew walk into that hospital with that American flag sewn on their flight suits. Um, pretty emotional, pretty crazy. So fast forward, I come home. Um, they take me over to the hospital in Murray, Utah. Next morning, Dr. Uh, Puts a stand in. Next day, I walked out of the hospital. No six months, no nothing. So that was in August 2010. And, and uh, I spent September, I was feeling sorry for myself, thinking that my dream hunt had been exploded and blown up. And then uh, I get a phone call October 7th. My mother told me that they found my sister Vicky dead. Oh, man. So... In an instant, I realized how crazy it was that I'd been feeling sorry for myself. Yeah. You know, and uh, the hardest thing I had to do was close the lid on her coffin. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she was my older sister, and we probably had the most in common and uh, got in a lot of trouble together, and uh, I still miss her and love her. And uh, crazy as it sounds, I uh, typically talk to her every day, you know prayer, whatever you want to call it, but, uh, you know, I, yeah, you feel her energy or presence. We still have those conversations. Yeah. So yeah, that was pretty educational and, uh, got through that. And then, uh, how did you, how did you cope with that, John? How did, how did you kind of find your way through that without turning to, you know, that song drugs or Jesus? I'm a big believer <laughs> in that. It seems like when people go through trauma, you know, they either go to drugs or Jesus. Right. Right. Well, you know, being raised in a family with, um, you know, my father was disabled at a young age for me. I was about eight years old and uh, being the only boy in the family, with five sisters and no brothers, you know, you learn to take on a lot of stuff. Yeah. And uh, it was important at that time in our lives that I helped, uh, you know, my parents get through that. Um, you know, no parent wants to ever lose a child. Um, it was just a really, really tough time. And, uh, you know, I had to take some time for myself and, uh, get out in the outdoors and uh, process some stuff. And, uh, uh, that's where I was able to, uh, get past a lot of it. Um, you know, everybody tells you it gets better with time. It, it doesn't, you just learn to live with it. Yeah. You learn to live with it. And uh, so that's where we're at. And that's what we did. And, uh, you know, I'm grateful for the experience, um, you know, with my family. And, and even though it was challenging that, uh, you know, my father was disabled and not able to do a lot. Um, I'm grateful. I wouldn't change any of it because of how close I am, you know, with the rest of the family. And we were always close, you know, once we got older. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. That's maybe more personal than you wanted to get. No, I love so, it. I appreciate it. I, appreciate I didn't know it. how far you wanted to dig, but. No, I, um, I, so your mom didn't happen to have a sister named Afton Boakley, did she? Yes. 
She did? Yes. That's weird. That's that's my grandma's name. That's absolutely right. <laughs> I guess that makes us second cousins? Yep. <laughs> that's absolutely right. Kind of cool, huh? Kind of cool. Welcome to Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, and that's, you know, you talk about your family and stuff. You know, your grandparents lived around the corner from us, and uh, I'm grateful to them. They... Uh, kind of took me in as far as hunting and fishing and stuff um you know after my own father couldn't drive and couldn't take me anymore and uh that's actually how I got involved you know with even your father um you know and his stories and what's going on and always had a huge amount of respect for Bob and Afton and and Ed and 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 the whole family that uh, kind of tolerated me in deer camp for all those years <laughs> So, <laughs> yeah, I come um, from a big hunting family. That's, that's for sure. And from what I understand, my grandpa is an amazing fisherman. Grandpa, Grandpa yeah. Boakley. Yeah. Yeah. He loved to fish. He had that homemade pontoon boat and, uh, he loved to fish. So yeah, I'm always grateful to those guys. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate the, uh, service to the nation, you know, from your family members and, uh, you can never give back to those guys for what they uh, sacrificed and what they did. So, you know, John, I never truly understood like, you know, cause I was probably too caught up in, in myself as a younger person. Uh, I never really understood the genealogy in my family and how much of it has been around military service. So there was my dad, my dad's dad, uh, uncle, pretty sure his dad's dad like i pretty sure i come from at least two or three generations of of military families so i know both my grandparents uh both both my grandpas fought in uh world war ii right yeah yeah dad fought in vietnam yeah yep. my dad lost uh an uncle in uh, world war ii yeah it's crazy i you know, what's funny is I, I never realized until I walked down the hallway at my mom's house and she has all these pictures of guys in military outfits and purple star or, you know, pur <laughs> what is that? The purple hearts. Purple hearts and these cool metal valor. Anyways, I don't know what they all are, but they, it's all, and I'm like, what is all this stuff? And so it's kind of cool to learn, kind of cool to learn. Yeah. And I, you know, I, uh, I had that on my father's side of the family, my grandfather on my father's side. You know, he was a Marine, and I had uncles that were in the CBs and, and uh, all on my father's side of the family. And uh, so there was a history of military background there, and that was part of my drive growing up that uh, I thought, one, it was going to get me away from five sisters, and two, <laughs> I was going to be able to form a brotherhood and uh, be able to make a difference. So... And that you are, buddy, that you are. So tell us a little bit about some of the cool experiences that you've had. What are some of your favorite experiences with, with working with the Foundation Hunts for the Brave? So we took a uh, gentleman on a hunt down uh, in uh, central Utah. How long ago was this? This was probably six years ago. Okay. And uh, he was an amputee and... Uh, he was really struggling, fighting a lot of post-traumatic stress. And, uh, you know, they reached out to us and the plan was put in place to bring his family in on the hunt so that he had his family there. He had that support. That's what he was comfortable with. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in talking to his mom, she's telling us about all the experiences they had with him um, after his injury. And when, when he was injured, they were going across a bridge and he stepped on a device that cost him his leg. Mm. But when that device went off, it blew him into the canal. And over there, they dump everything in the canal. Their sewers, their chemicals, whatever. There's no regulations. So now he's got infection and they can't figure out what it is. So they ended up about 30 surgeries on this young man. 30, three zero. Three zero. Wow. And each time they're having to cut another layer off because they can't <sighs> stop the bacteria. They can't figure it out. The government sent scientists and everybody over to Germany. They had to grow this stuff. They had to figure it out and figure out how to kill it. 
So they got that accomplished, and we, uh, you know, fast forward, they get him back into the States, and uh, they're getting him uh, fixed with his prosthetic. And uh, his mom is telling us, she says, well, you know, all these people came to see him when he was in there. She says, but I got no idea who they are. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, well, you got any pictures? And she says, well, yeah, I got them on my laptop. So she opens up her laptop. There's this young man, and he's standing with Dale Earnhardt Jr. He's standing with <laughs> Gary Sinise. He's standing with all these Hollywood people. And she's she's like, we don't have any idea who most of these people are. She was totally oblivious. Yeah. Really? And wow. I, when I'm looking at the first one, I'm like, you realize that's Dale Earnhardt Jr., right? <laughs> she's like, well, who's that? It's like, okay, never mind. She doesn't watch NASCAR. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to get too redneck on you, but... Uh, uh, so that was a that was a great experience, and uh, you know he uh, recovered really well from that experience, and actually was willing to uh, re-engage, come out of the basement. That's where he had been living, and uh, actually got himself back into school. Went to school, started an organization that uh, does motorcycle racing for disabled veterans. Oh wow! And uh, you know one of the best parts of this conversation is talking to him as he's headed back east back to the military hospital they're going to work on his prosthetic because every time he's racing his motorcycle his legs falling off <laughs> oh man did you, you know even what? imagine and he's willing to share that story and uh, do you think he's just doing it as like mental warfare against the other racers no, no. <laughs> i just kidding i don't think i mean you know, you never know. I mean, what's going to throw you off more than coming around the corner and finding a leg in the road? <laughs> right. You know, right. I, that would throw you off. It's like, yeah. did I really just pass a leg? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do I stop and pick it up or what? And I hope people don't think I'm cruel for laughing at this, but I'm sure, you know, tragedy plus time equals humor, right? And, and I'm sure he would be sitting here laughing along with us. And I also want to point out that this is a podcast about recovery from addiction, but it's also We Do Recover. And that's a great example of somebody that's been through something extremely difficult, and he's recovered from it. Now he's racing, is it dirt bikes or street bikes? Dirt bikes. Now he's racing dirt bikes. Racing in the dirt. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And here he, he was so fragile when he first came to Hunts for the Brave, right? He wanted to have his family around and was very fearful. And it's just kind of cool to show how far he, he's come. Right. And, and, you know, each individual is different. Um, real quick, I took another individual on a uh, bull elk hunt with uh, one of our board members, good friend of mine, Garth uh, Hardy. And uh, I won't disclose the veteran's name, but we took him on this bull elk hunt. And uh, this guy was tough. He didn't want to talk. He wouldn't, nothing. But, uh, Every time we get out of the trucks, we're looking for elk, and the elk are coming up the ridge towards us, and I'm looking around, and I can't see where he's gone. Well, his military training kicks in, so every time he's going to go live on the trigger, he drops to the ground in the prone position. Oh, okay. So now he's laying in the snow in the sagebrush going, I can't see anything, and we're saying, dude, you got to stand up. <laughs> you got to stand up. Right. And, uh, you know, that was the first. It took us three hunts because we refused to give up on this guy and on the third hunt he finally opened up and told us just the most terrifying stories of what happened to him when he was in afghanistan how he lost all of his buddies his high school buddies his best friends you know how he's carrying these guys out and uh man you know took us three trips but we finally got him to open up and you know, at that point, he admitted that there was other issues and, uh, you know, he had to get himself into recovery. And uh, so he was struggling with the substance abuse disorder. Yeah. He's doing awesome to date. He's uh, quit drinking and, uh, you know, he's clean and sober and uh, we stay in touch. And uh, every time I go to Seattle, we go to dinner and uh, been up there fishing with him a couple of times. And uh, we just stay in touch with these guys. But we just... You can't give up. You can't give up. When you reach out to somebody, and everybody listening to this, you know somebody, reach out to them and don't give up. If they tell you, no, I don't need help or whatever, don't give up, please. Continue to show them some love. Reach out. Make them part of your life. Make them feel like they're appreciated. Yeah. So. 
Yeah, that's a great point. There's something that um, veterans talk about that's similar to second birthdays for those of us that are in recovery. And uh, so for, for me, like, you know, my second birthday is July 3rd, 2014. What is the veterans take on uh, this idea I'm talking about, John? So a lot of the veterans will call that their live day. That's when they turn the corner. And uh, for a lot of them, they use that as a day that they survived a blast or an explosion or an ambush or whatever. Traumatic a lot event. Of, yeah. yeah. Traumatic event. And a lot of them will use that for the days that they decided to come up out of the garage, you know, out of the basement and out of the garage and out of the dark and back into the light. And, uh, you know, you've maybe seen this on Facebook as of late, but it's a great thing. And I love it. The word fear, you know, the, the first option is forget everything and run. Yeah. And the second option is face everything and rise. Yeah. You know, that's what these guys, they get to that point and they're losing wives, they're losing their kids, they can't see anybody, then they become homeless. I mean, that, that once they start that downward spiral, and uh, that's what we work on identifying and trying to stop. Yeah. So their live day is the day that they decided, I'm going to do something about this instead of turning yes. and running, I'm going to face it and rise. Yeah, yep. pick up that armor like you talked That's about. That's the day they on. completed their armor and they turned to face the problem, knowing the problem was going to kick them right on their backside. But they stood up and they faced it and they faced it and they finally overcame it and they accomplished. And, uh, you know, they're amazing people. And uh, I'm so grateful to have them in my life. You know, John, I, I love that you talked about the experiences that you've had with these vets because to me that's the most important thing. Let's... Uh, You've also had some pretty cool experiences with some people that they've had some movies made after them. I mean, you're, you've you've met some people working with Hunts for the Brave. Am I wrong? Yeah, between the combination of Hunts for the Brave and uh, Sportsman for Fish and Wildlife, I've had the opportunity to meet some amazing people. Um, you know, the Jeff Foxworthy, Marcus Latrell. Marcus is a great guy, uh, great friend. I had the opportunity to cook dinner for him and. Uh, Taya Kyle and, and his uh, Patriot Tour back in uh, 2016. For those that don't know, Marcus, what what film, what Hollywood film was based on his story? So Marcus is the original lone survivor from Operation Wet Red Wings that uh, seen uh, all of his teammates killed. Um, Marcus typically crawled, basically crawled about seven miles before he was rescued and uh, taken in by a tribe that protected him from the Taliban. And, uh, you know, they made a movie with Mark Wahlberg as a uh, lone survivor. Yep. And, uh, you know, to sit down with that gentleman and uh, have him tell you his story face to face and uh, be able to interact with him was just, I mean, it's priceless. But, uh, yeah, we've had the opportunity to meet some great people. You know, a couple of years ago, I was able to do a lunch and an event with uh, Rob O'Neill. Rob O'Neill's the Navy SEAL that uh, eliminated uh, Ben Laden. He was also the uh, team director that rescued Captain Phillips. Wow. And, uh, you know, my question to Rob was, you're on a big boat. You're looking at a small boat. <laughs> you're moving different in the water, and you guys scored everything you needed to to rescue Captain Phillips. And he just looks at me in the stone cold, and he says, that's what I do. <laughs> just, yeah. I was like, no, because, I mean, I like to think of myself as a pretty good shot with a rifle, but I'm thinking, really? Yeah. I mean, I, I'd probably be lucky to hit the water if I was on a boat going up and down, right? <laughs> That's pretty cool. So, yeah, great stuff. And, uh, you know, there's been amazing people that have come through and talked to us. Um, you can go into the wrestling world. I was able to spend some time with uh, Shawn Michaels and, um, just amazing, amazing people. And, uh, they have their hearts in the right place. Um, sometimes they get in a position where they can't do as much as they'd like because of their celebrity. Right. But yeah. at the end of the day, what they do behind the scenes, um, you know, we're, we're grateful to these guys and, and what they do and the groundwork that they've laid for programs like ours to, uh, you know, give back to our veterans and, uh, first responders and, uh, yeah, you just can't say enough about uh, what they do for us. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. 
Thank you for coming on. I, I do have one last question here as we wrap up with the last minute and a half. So the title of this podcast is We Do Recover. What does that mean to you and the organization that you work with, John? What does We Do Recover mean? Uh, just what we talked about. If we get these guys up out of the basement and, uh, you know, you get them to re-engage with their families, you have wives coming up to you at the Marine Ball saying, hey, I don't know how you did it, but you got my husband to re-engage our family. You gave me back my husband. I haven't seen this guy since before he deployed. That's a successful recovery. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Thank you for coming on. No, no worries. Uh, again, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to uh, everybody listening. Um, I love, man, I love you guys. You know these veterans. You know these first responders. Please reach out to them. And where do they, where do they contact you again? I know we said it in the first one. So they can find us at uh, huntsforthebrave.org. You guys also have a Facebook page, right? Because we, we shoot this live on Facebook. Right, right. And if you can't find us there, you can go to Sportsman's for Fish and Wildlife and click on Affiliates. You can find us there. Okay, what's the next event that you got coming up? If somebody's wanting to get involved, what, do, what would they look forward to? So our next event will probably be uh, our golf tournament, June 18th, um, Glenmore Golf Club. You can, uh, again, that'll be on our website. You can find the information there. You're an amazing man. I appreciate you coming on and gracing us with your presence. Nah, I love you, brother. And I got to give a shout out to your mom. Judy, thanks for tolerating us. <laughs> Absolutely. We love that lady. Yeah. It's been a fun one. Thank, Thank you, guys. You we'll see you next week. Us today on We Do Recover with Jared Miller. Help us spread our message of hope. Like, comment, and share. If you have any topics or ideas for future shows, please share that on our Facebook page. That Facebook page is We Do Recover with Jared Miller. If you or a loved one needs help, please reach out to us. Again, thank you for listening. Brought to you by Steps Recovery Center and the St. George Hilton Garden Inn. This has been a production from A Podcast Studio.